Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the critical week ahead, the busiest of earnings season. Five mega cap techs, Fed meeting on deck, jobs report, our investment committee sizing up all of that for you. Joining me for the hour, Joe Terranova, Bill Baruch, and Steve Weiss. Take you to the markets. We're green across the board. Maybe a little bit of a wait and see, not doing all that much, but we do have so much ahead, Joe, this week. Um, you want to tell me what you think is really at stake for this entire market this week? I think it begins with Microsoft. I think Microsoft is absolutely critical, that earnings report. Let's be clear that the expectations for all of these mega cap companies is incredibly high. Mm -hmm. They have a high bar to uh, exceed. Um, In terms of the impact of the market, I think that there has to be something within the earnings report that is so overwhelmingly disappointing that it will reverse a lot of the positive momentum in the market. I think a gentle miss, um, a, a small miss, I don't think that's enough. I still think there's enough entrenched buying in the marketplace for these companies. So I, I think Microsoft sets the tone for the week for sure. Um, I don't think we should make too much of the fact that this could reverse the rally. I think it's going to be very difficult to reverse the positive momentum that's in place. Although, Bill, you know, it's interesting. You've had, you've had a reversal of sorts already from broad to back to the mega caps. So maybe to Joe's point, that only increases the pressure because now the money's been flowing back. Year-to-date performance on everything but Apple is, I mean, you off the charts. Microsoft's up 8%, Amazon's up 4.5%, Alphabet up 9%, Meta's 125 NVIDIA doesn't report this week, but it's up 24%. So the gains have been substantial over the first three and a half weeks of this year. Yeah, I I do think there is a a big deal in the fact that we've seen a lot of the expectations being built into the price action that we've had. And that was, you know, one of the reasons why I look at it with a little bit of caution, mission last week on NVIDIA and AMD, but I'm looking at, I, I think Microsoft, to your point, is the biggest one. They are the leader bringing AI to the marketplace first, and they're monetizing it. And by monetizing it, the revenues are flowing to NVIDIA and AMD. So I think a lot is going to be tied onto that. Are they are they monetizing it properly? And then Alphabet number two, then you know, where's the cloud direction? So there's a lot out there right now. I mean, if they miss a little bit, like you mentioned, I don't think it's going to be market over. But if there is a if there's a big whiff somewhere, there's going to be a lot of fear that it could show up somewhere else. Too. Weiss, is it is it all about Microsoft? You know, tomorrow after the bell. Because, look, Dan Ives thinks it is, says it's the most important earnings report and conference call of of this season. Barron's says, okay, Microsoft's now the most valuable company. Now it has to prove it can stay there. From a valuation standpoint, it has expanded greater over its 10-year historical average than any of the others. 23.9, 10-year average, 33.1 today. Assess that. 
So here's what I'd say. I'd say it is the most important uh, report of the week until Wednesday. So you have so much news coming after Wednesday that Microsoft's going to be in the rear view window. window. So Wednesday, we've got the Fed, and then we've got three more important tech companies. Actually, take, take one of those out. Take Apple, because Apple is, has very low expectations, despite the stock holding up fairly well. And I believe those expectations will be met. But you've got other important companies. So yes, most important of the year, the most important of the decade for that afternoon and for Wednesday morning. And then it's on to other things. Look. You can take a look at a company like Tesla that really disappointed, that really missed, that's much more elevated, maybe not historically, but much more elevated to their growth and everything else than Microsoft is. And that stock's bouncing back since the disastrous report last week. So the market, to Joe's point, is pretty forgiving. I do think there's going to be a constant bid for tech. And Microsoft should have an elevated valuation to what it had because you're entirely on the cusp of an entirely new product cycle that's driven by AI. And the company's also changed over the last 10 years with this massive recurring revenue stream. So we can parse whether valuation is much too high, whether it's too low. Or if you take a view longer than Tuesday afternoon, I think you'll do quite well with the stock over time, as with the other. And that doesn't speak to what I continue to believe is a new population that's come into the market that's less driven by individual data points for more than a nanosecond and continues to like what they know, what's familiar with them. And that's Microsoft. That's Google. That's Meta, which I think is really doing quite well. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I think the market's OK. At some point, though, Joe, you, you know, you've got to decide what you're willing to pay for all the attributes that Weiss was talking about for you know, these companies that are betting big on this transformational technology. Sakanagi over at Bernstein um, says he struggles to recommend an overweight for tech because they're expensive on an absolute or historical basis. We gave you what the 10-year averages are versus what they're trading at today. You know, Apple is 10, 10 times higher or 10 points higher, 18.9, 10, uh, 10 year, 28 today. Told you what Microsoft is as well. Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG, is, is saying that the Nasdaq's showing signs of exhaustion, these mega caps are, so the bar's even higher. I'm, I'm not sure I, I, I see the signs of exhaustion just, just yet. Um, I, I, I think that there still is, as Steve mentioned, there's demand underneath the market when it appears as though we're about to enter a corrective phase. The buy the dip mentality still seems to be in place. Um, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to say something that, that I'm sure is going to be greeted with a lot of skepticism and probably a degree of criticism. But we keep looking at these mega cap companies mm -hmm. and we keep referring back to the historical valuation of these companies. Maybe that's the wrong exercise. Maybe it's the wrong exercise to think about these companies in the past and not realize that maybe there's a valuation reset going on given the advancement of the innovation. Well, not maybe. I think your point's well taken and fair. I mean, there obviously has been a valuation reset for some of these companies. The question is, are we putting the cart before the horse? Are we assuming that they're going to reap the rewards and benefits that the market has already priced in for, for many of these names. Now, but the earnings Mike, have supported well, that today. Well, Microsoft and NVIDIA are yeah. proving to be able to monetize AI in a way that some of these others aren't. 
Those rising tides have lifted a lot of boats. Mm-hmm. Now the proof's in the pudding as to whether the boats deserve to be at the same level with those yachts. Yeah, but specific to Alphabet, specific to NVIDIA, specific to Microsoft, there's, there's enough clear evidence there to suggest that we might see valuations grow even richer than where they are now, and it is warranted. So I I just think, be careful relying on a historical valuation exercise to determine your positioning in a particular mega cap, mega cap. Not the derivatives off the mega caps. I got you, you wanna weigh in on that, on that bill? I mean, because you have, your top holding is Amazon, your number two is Apple, your number three is Alphabet, your number five is Microsoft. So you're all over this this yeah. week. You better hope they go well. Yeah, I mean, I, I really do hope they go well. I think they can. And one we haven't mentioned is Amazon. And Amazon's the highest multiple of the entire group. And I really think here, if, if they've, been, they've been seeing some really great tailwinds with margins in retail as well. The juggernaut of AWS. I mean, if we continue to see revenue growth at that pace and better, I think the, what we're seeing is, is the multiples will continue to come down as we look out, and those are going to be it's going to be a continued tailwind for the market, and that's huge for these big names right now. Well, AWS has really, Weiss, I think, it's, it's changed the game in terms of how you read where Amazon is trading. Amazon's always been at a historically expensive valuation, and in the past you're like, wow, you know, I'm going to pay 100 times for a marketplace business. I mean. How much can that really continue to grow? But AWS has changed the game enough that the forward P.E. on Amazon today is 42. It's not the triple digit one that it's lived with for most most of its history. Yep, exactly. And think about it now. Uh, The vanity projects are gone. They've gotten religion like all the other tech companies coming out of uh, the pandemic on spending. So Jassy has done a very good job of allocating capital to each business. Uh, And when you look at AWS, growth starts to pick up again. We had a slowness. You know, all cloud growth just hit a wall last year, but now it starts to reaccelerate as we saw the last quarter. What's uh, what's lost in this conversation, though, is AWS signed a $10 billion contract with Microsoft to use their tools in their cloud business. So when you take a look at cloud, we've been talking about it for more than a decade, but still it's less than the corporate corporations around the world are still less than 30% of the cloud right now. So you've got that massive transition that's going to continue and accelerate as more computing power requires more cloud usage. So that's a big, big tailwind. But, you know, just go back to my prior comments. You know, I would say to Krinsky that that when, when you cite the numbers due to performance of mega cap tech this year, it's hard to say it's exhausted to anything but. But I do think at some point, it's only natural to see a pause in the acceleration in the market. Will the quarter, will this quarter's earnings give it reason to have that pause? Maybe. But we can't keep going like we are right now. Now, what could make me wrong, what could make me wrong is the Fed really changes their language. Well, what could make me wrong also, on the other side, is if the U.S. goes into Iran, and that'll be a knee-jerk reaction, because then think what happens. That's the real canary in the coal mine, because then oil prices will spike, and what's the Fed going to do? That'll drive inflation. So it's not like it's 100% clear ahead. There are some issues that can cause the market to be disrupted in, you know, for a short time. You know, Goldman's Tony Pascarello, head of uh, hedge fund client coverage, on, on the idea, I guess, of exhaustion, 
says this has been one of the most powerful short cycle rallies we've ever seen. The 19% rip in the S&P over the past three months registers in the 99th percentile of market history. This type of move usually happens coming out of recessions. Stock operators should give thanks. It won't always be this good. Excellent note, as always, from Tony. Let's talk about the exhaustion for one second for the viewers. The S&P right now is 48.96. He's not saying it's exhausted. He's just pointing out with the facts like, oh, my gosh, this thing has really gone far away in a short period of time. So how do the viewers think about Tony's note? How do they think about this exhaustion conversation? S&P is 48.96 right now. We all know that 48.08 to 48.10 was that critical area that Friday morning about 10 days ago. We broke out at 10.30 in the morning. You had all that non-discretionary buying come into the market, algorithms, hundreds of billions of dollars coming in, getting long the market, right? Not even thinking about it. That's the level. That's the point of reference. So to what Stephen is, is, is targeting, it would be more than normal, <clears throat> be more than normal for us to be in a consolidation range, for us to get earnings from mega cap technology, whether they're disappointing or whether they exceed expectations, and for the market to retreat in somewhat of a consolidation phase above 4810, below 4900, and just basically chop around. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier. Because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. That's a normal circumstance, and that's a circumstance, Scott, that doesn't mean you're getting out of your equity names because you're not going to be fast enough to get back in when the prevailing bull trend starts up again. I had a conversation with uh, the Wharton professor, Jeremy Siegel, on Friday about where his expectations are for where the market can go over the remainder of the year, whether it's too expensive. Now, I want you to listen to what he told me. Sure, he's bullish, but listen. I'm still positive on the market. we are selling for 20 times earnings, although, I mean, if you're a growth stock, you're selling at 25 to 30. If you're a value stock, you're selling at 15, 14. So there is a difference. Uh, overall, 20 uh, is OK. It's not cheap. Uh, and I still think we can get 8 to 10 percent for the year. Um, uh, I, the economy is still very strong. I think we're actually going to beat 242 earnings on the S&P 500. Um, and uh, as a result, I think stocks could advance. Eight to 10 percent. That's the professor. What do we think? Yep. Well, I think the, I think the market, to Joe's point, can, a consolidation here would be really healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, th- but we could still grind higher if a rotation happens. Some of the some of the steam that really drove this of the mega mega cap tech, maybe earnings pre-pricing themselves in. And then to the Goldman Sachs note, Tony's note there, um, in order to have such a vicious move to the upside, there needs to be money on the sidelines to fuel that. And why was the money on the on the sidelines? Because Powell said he was going to bring pain over a year ago. He said he was going to bring pain. And guess what happened? Inflation's come down. Down. So now that we've seen this continual evolution of moving away from needing to bring pain, mm-hmm. now that we can have a little bit of a, of a sort of open space, if they make a transition this week and they remove that restrictive note on, around it and they really sort of pave way to a, a cut in March, I mean, what's going to stop this market from continuing to go I mean, higher? they've already, you know, look, the market's moved a lot because of the perceived pivot that the yeah. Fed has already made. Jan Hatzius, by the way, doubling down on his call for a cut in March. Five cuts in total. March probability is now less than 50 percent, 49. 
But nonetheless, the probabilities have been coming down steadily as the economic data has remained strong and, and, and going in the opposite direction. What do you think about this, this March idea? I think <clears throat> how, how, how anchored do you think we are to that? Uh, I, I think you have to watch the Treasury market. And I think that's what's important right now. OK, the Treasury market 10 year yield peaked at 419. We're beginning to see Treasuries once again, 10 years beginning to retreat. We've got a 410 on a 10 year right now. Watch for the disinversion. That, to me, is the absolute critical indicator in the market. Tell me this trade you made. You, you're, you're buying really short dated uh, calls in the IWM. Yes. Small caps as a play of sorts on what the Fed may do this week. Literally, literally insurance. I think, Bill, Bill, you could relate. It's literally insurance on the portfolio. Think back to the December meeting, how after that you began to see the broadening out of the rally. You saw the Russell 2000 get some, some wind behind it, significant tailwinds. Um, potentially, you could have the same thing occur this week. These are short-dated options. These are options that I will hold through the FOMC meeting mm -hmm. just in case, just mm -hmm. in case you get that broadening out on something that the Federal Reserve might indicate, or if you get the disinversion of the yield curve, you've got to watch that two to 10 spread. So these are IWM calls, the 198 strike. Like I said, listen, they're not significant in size. They're nothing more than a little portfolio of insurance guarding against what happened in December. And by the way, the probability of what I think this will actually occur I am not incredibly confident on it. That's why I'm using the option market. Well, I agree with you. I think the Fed wants to normalize the yield curve. And then here's the reality. With the 10-year real rates hanging around 2%, this is the highest level since 2007. If they want to cause a recession, they will keep real rates up here. That's, that is the reason why they're going to be cutting rates. Well, it only adds to the intrigue of what's going to happen this week. Don't forget the jobs report, too. Uh, at the end of the week. There's another Goldman story, by the way, making news today that we're following. It's Jim Esposito. He's the co-head of investment banking and global markets. Um, is going to be leaving the firm. Our Leslie Picker is with us today following the money. Um, you know, I don't know how much of a surprise this is. He's 56, yep. been there almost 30 years. He um, He's done so many things over there, too, and a uh, just a really good guy. He is a really good guy. I was just talking to someone about that. Uh, but yeah, you, you bring up a good point. 56 years in banking is like, I don't know, 80 years in another profession. Yeah, right. So it's time. Uh, my understanding in speaking with people close to him is that it's time to try something new. Uh, he ran that group, Goldman's Bread and Butter, Butter, with two other co-heads who will continue to manage the unit, which houses investment banking and sales and trading. Esposito will become a senior director, according to a memo obtained by CNBC that was sent by CEO David Solomon to the firm. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Esposito wanted that top job, and in leaving, it's a signal that he saw the odds of attaining a promotion to be a long shot from here. The Journal added, citing people familiar with the matter, that Solomon has indicated to top executives that he's not stepping down anytime soon. So it's benchwarming season with the recent moves at J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, succession very top of mind on Wall Street. But this is, I think that's somewhat newsworthy that Solomon has indicated, hey, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. Right. Uh, they had a very good fourth quarter, uh, especially relative to the prior quarters, um, you know, second and third quarter of last year, where there were some special items, a pretty significant pivot at that firm. There was some negative press, some publicity, some concern that maybe he didn't have the full support of the board. Uh, ultimately, it appears that that has all kind of at least simmered down for yeah. now, and he's indicating he's not yeah. uh, not stepping down. No, leaving at a time of relative calm right. after what was a you know fairly sizable storm around 
what was happening, not only around Solomon, but with the transition away from, from some businesses. So I think there's the, the obvious idea of that's now passed. Mm -hmm. But the inescapable part is looking into the cockpit and saying, well, you know, the lead pilot's not going anywhere. Right. The co-pilot, John Waldron, he's like 55, I think. He's yeah. not going anywhere. So what are the chances that I'm going to get to take the wheel here and wanting to have another significant act before the sand runs out? Yeah. Right? It appears, based on the bench that Goldman does have, that there are significant, talented people, should that position open up one day, that they could fill that void. Obviously, Waldron has been floated as a potential candidate. Dan Dees, who is uh, Esposito's co-head of that group, has been floated as a potential candidate, among others. So there are certainly names that get floated around uh, that could ultimately, you know, take that position, should it open up. But, you know, based on... on the journal's reporting, and I've done some reporting as well. It doesn't appear like that seat is going to be open anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. I spent some time with him over in London um, not that long ago. Um, seems in a, in a good place. Yeah. And uh, just a good guy, yeah. as we'll we said. We'll see what he does next. It sounds like he wants to maybe do something a little different, although he's not sure at this point in time. So definitely a career to follow. He's still young. We wish him well. Yes. Do we, Jim Esposito? Yeah. Leslie, thank you. Thank you. You guys own the stock? I, I bought Goldman Sachs recently. I think it's one of the top capital market plays as a shareholder. Um, yes, obviously, sorry to see such a talented uh, executive leave Goldman Sachs, but I feel as though Goldman Sachs is positioned in the right direction now. Um, clearly, since December, they had a little bit of a breakout. You're maintaining that even post earnings. Stock trading at 376. I see the stock going above the November high at 426. I like where they are. And we are thinking about a capital markets recovery. Think Goldman Sachs. Why you on Goldman too, yeah? I do, I do. And when you think about what David Solomon has done, uh, he's changed the game plan at Goldman quite a bit. So you could actually be surprised that more haven't left that did so well under the, the prior business plan, which means he's gone more to an asset management firm. Uh, look, Jim's brother left a few years ago, Mike. Uh, Goldman, it's the culture. It's the people. It's the next person up. So I think David Solomon has done a great job. Waldron is unbelievably well-liked by everybody who comes into contact with him. And by the way, you know, this is not just Goldman. You know, when Staley left J.P. Morgan, we said, oh, no, there goes the heir apparent. Well, thank God, right, because the Jeffrey Epstein. We take a look at Apple. They just lost another key person. They lost Johnny Ives. They lost so many key people. It's interesting we don't talk about those companies, which arguably don't have as deep a bench and don't have, you know, have the talent like Johnny Ives in certain people, not expansive. And we focus more on Goldman, which has one of the strongest cultures, one of the longest dated cultures of any company out there. So to me, we had the same conversation about Goldman, the head of asset management, left about six months ago, and the stock's higher. So these are blips. These are just the normal turn of events at companies. And look, he's made a lot of money over his time. And he goes and he sees, maybe I want to do something over again. Because when you're a banker, you're also an entrepreneur. So that bug hits you, and particularly when you've earned the money that Jim Esposito has had, and you have that freedom of choice, why not? All right, another story we're watching uh, as well here at the New York Stock Exchange today. Well, the Super Bowl, obviously, the matchup set there, and right on cue for that, the parent of gambling site FanDuel listing here at the New York Stock Exchange, who else but Contessa Brewer is here following that. That's Flutter. 
uh, today. It's right in your wheelhouse. So exciting. They had a marching yeah, band Grant coming through. Yeah, was here, the marching yeah. band. I mean, it's like, it, it was, was a show, right. Well, so Flutter shares here list for the first time in the United States is a dual listing as its primary listing is in London, where it's included in the FTSE 100. But May 1st, shareholders will actually vote on making the U.S. the primary listing. Why does it matter? Well, FanDuel is in first place for market share in the U.S. with notable revenue growth and proven profitability. And yet DraftKings has enjoyed the lion's share of earned media and really captured the imagination of American investors as the biggest slash only publicly traded pure play on sports betting. Flutter CEO Peter Jackson told me this morning right here that he's eager to take advantage of all the media coverage, but also to offer domestic investors an alternative. He says Flutter is going to benefit from the liquidity on the New York Stock Exchange, and he's really excited about that moving forward. How do they stack up to DraftKings in terms of their marketing spend and their, I think what the industry refers to as their customer acquisition Yeah, they, they, lo they love jargon, CAC, they call it. It's lower than what uh, DraftKings has been spending by quite a lot. Does it have to be higher now? Uh, I don't think so. I think what happens is you see the marketing costs ramp up around football because they want anyone who's not already betting to try it out for entertainment purposes. And football is the number one sport in America. So that's number one. Two, what they see is as states get more mature, the marketing costs, the promotional expenses come down quite a bit. And that's how some of the other competitors, Caesars, for instance, has already had mm -hmm. profitability in specific quarters because they really pull back on that marketing spend when they need to. Jeffrey's out with a note that says, given uh, FanDuel's outperformance in the market share, it should enjoy a 20% premium to DraftKings multiples. I can't imagine that this is all a coincidence that this is happening today after we're sitting here with all of the Super Bowl talk, which is their Super Bowl it, uh, in terms of where, where gaming is. It's so exciting. And, and what we heard was, in fact, one of the uh, FanDuel executives told me that during the Chiefs game last night, or the 49ers game, they got 60,000 bets per minute. That's 10,000 more than during the Super Bowl last year. And so what you're seeing is more engagement across the board for this. What will that happen? You know, what will we see play out during the Super Bowl? I think these are two teams that they could be really excited about. Big market teams, um, you know, a history of really performing. Yeah, what, spreads like, close too. So you're going to get a you get a lot of money on on both sides I, of the ledger. Too. I, I think that's true. Can I point out one more thing Real that quick, might yeah. matter to investors? Yeah. iGaming. We got numbers for the states, five, six states where it's legal right now. Pennsylvania is the first state to make $200 million on gross gaming revenue mm. on iGaming. That's online casino games. The only state that's done that on online sports betting was Ohio when it first launched in January of 23. So the potential growth from iGaming, where FanDuel is now the market leader, I think is really phenomenal and, and notable. Oh, good point. Uh, Contessa, thanks. Contessa Brewer. All right, up next, our calls of the day. Uber, Costco, AbbVie are all on the move. We'll trade them next. Thank you. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. 
This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. All right, we're back. We're going to do some calls of the day now. We're going to start with Uber. Everybody owns it on the desk today because Bernstein is previewing their owners, uh, their, their earnings, excuse me. Uh, hit a new record high, by the way. Quote, I think it's evident that Uber has graduated from stonk to stock over the past year. And any significant dip will get bought by long-term shareholders who now believe Uber is a must-have core holding for many funds. What do we think? I think it's a great note. I think it, it highlights all the reasons why you want to take ownership of this company. Um, recently added to the S&P 500. It is an industrial three-year, 41% revenue growth, 14% revenue growth last year. It's a type of company you don't get that type of, of, of growth from, from an industrial company. 56% of its revenue exposure is in the U.S. That's where the opportunity is for the international growth. And we're talking about a stock buyback? I know. How much Uber? is priced in, though? Right? It's, up it's up 120% in a year. No, my response to that, you're not going to like. But how high is oh. high and how low is like, low? No, no one knows how high is high and how low is low. The momentum fundamentally is technically is well entrenched into this company. It is a core holding. Why wouldn't I like yeah. that? I don't know. What kind of answer is that? They've accomplished. Bill, you own it too. Yeah. It's a top 10 position for you. They've accomplished a lot. I mean, you look back in, in 2020, negative $3.3 billion free cash flow, now positive 2.2. They, what they're doing here is in penetrating outside of their traditional business, the final mile, delivery. I mean, they're looking at, at, at really, I think this, this uh, he's, the moon is the, is the possibility here. I mean, if you're looking for the, the stock that ha- the next five to 10 years with tremendous, tremendous upside, it's Uber. That's a great answer. Yeah. I liked it better than Joe's. Weiss, you own it too. I do. Look, when you think about what the CEO has done, he's not only had to change the company in terms of their operations, he's had to change the culture. Think of how many CEOs have been able to do that. So going back to our conversations and Joe's comments on valuation, valuation is going to get a lot cheaper this year and next year in forecast you're below 30 times. That's not cheap in the absolute, but coming from last year's over 100 times earnings, you see the progression. So I think the market is much more focused on fundamentals than it really is on a P.E. basis. The other thing I'd say, certain their uh, things don't work. Like, I don't think last mile delivery is going to work. They can't make money on it. The drivers can't make money on it, and the vendors can't make money on it. So I'd stay away from that. The other thing I like about this is scarcity. So what do you have out there? You have Lyft. But Lyft is sort of like a pimple. It's, it's a really distant second player. Now, they may turn it around. They may not. Who knows? But right now, we've got scarcity, and I love that in looking at business models. Okay. Costco maintained a buy at Jeffries. Joe, you have this in the Joe T. Since inception, this is a core holding uh, consumer staple name. 
clearly Costco, Walmart, they have figured out customer retention to a degree in which Target is struggling over the last 18 months. Let's be clear on that. Uh, they will report earnings on March 7th. I expect another strong quarter from this company. 72% revenue exposure here in the mm -hmm. U.S. They are correlated to a U.S. consumer that's out there spending. Bill, AbbVie upgraded to outperform today at William Blair. So what do you think about that as you own that stock? They've continued to surprise with the, with the drug coming on in their new pipeline, uh, Rinvac and SkyRizzy. And there still is a disconnect with the street with where they see the growth from these two new drugs to where AbbVie sees them. AbbVie sees growth into the 2030s, where the street really is predicting to 2028. Humira has continued to be, be a, a much better participant in revenue than they thought. And then guess what? Hedge funds are short this name. It was one of the largest hedge fund shorts. So as this name is breaking out, it broke a downtrend line, there's going to be short covering that I think that fuels this thing to record highs. That's All a right. great answer. Thank you very much. Again. Thank you. you taking notes? Yeah. All right. I do what I can. I'm learning. All right, good. Silvana now has the headlines for us. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Scott. Good afternoon to you. The U.S. military was unable to stop a drone attack that killed three U.S. troops and injured dozens of others in Jordan yesterday because of confusion from the enemy drone approaching the base at the same time a U.S. drone was also returning to base. That's according to a Wall Street Journal report quoting U.S. officials who say so far they have yet to find evidence that Iran directed the attack. 20 years after a rap legend was shot in his New York recording studio, the trial is set to begin today for two men accused of killing Run DMC's Jam Master Jay. Prosecutors say the two men killed the famed DJ over a drug deal in 2002. Both men have pled not guilty. And members of an exploration team believe they have solved one of the world's most enduring mysteries, the location of Amelia Earhart's plane that vanished over the Pacific Ocean in 1937. In a trip to the suspected area of Earhart's crash about halfway between Hawaii and Australia, the deep sea vision team found a blurry shape of a plane using sonar. The team plans to return later this year for a closer look, Scott. we got to solve this. Yeah. Silvana, thank you. Yeah. Silvana had now coming up. We're going beyond big tech. Bob Pisani looking at the big buzz in the ETF world outside of the MAG7. We're back in two. We are back now to Bob Pisani with today's ETF Edge. Bob, and we're looking outside rarely outside of the mag seven i hear it is and we're interested in trying to figure out where the business is going for the etfs for the magnificent seven it's a new year lots of new money moving around the etf space in the first month of the year let's find out where the money's going ben slave an old friend of my global head of etfs at bny mellon and you do a lot of the plumbing for keeping the etf business going we got a spot bitcoin how is it trading and most of the money seems to be coming for the new ones, out of the grayscale and into the new ones, not a lot of broad retail money, though, going in. How would you describe the first three weeks of this? Well, the headline, first of all, is that the product is working just as advertised. It's tracking, and we're obviously seeing a healthy amount of liquidity and interest from investors. Where we're seeing the money come from has been more on the institutional side, much less on retail. These products are not available yet on models. They're not fully available on platforms. So primarily it's been institutional investors. And now we'll see the real battle of the tickers begin um, as these products take root in the market. We've got a lot of buzz in the ETF, ETF world about alternatives to the magnificent seven stocks. Everybody's nervous again about how top heavy it's been. Tech sector is what, 30% of the S&P? Semiconductors are a, a third of that at this point. Uh, equal weight. 
RSP, this equal weight tech that's getting a lot of inflows recently. People seem nervous about the top heaviness. Is there a reason to be concerned and what are you seeing for flows? Well, certainly it's something we're hearing more and more from advisors and you can see that in the flow data. They're looking for somewhere else to go that really has been less loved or at least at lesser valuations. And we're seeing some rotation into certain sectors, financials, a little bit into real estate. And certainly I think uh, something we started to see in the fourth quarter after the big small cap rally, we see money uh, being allocated there as well. Finally, ETF investors seem to be coming out of the short end of the curve in the terms of bond ETFs. Why is that happening? Where are they starting to put their money right now in terms of bond ETFs? Well, we saw in 2023 a huge amount of investment go into the short end of the curve, and certainly money markets were also a big story there. Now we're starting to see that rotation going into really the intermediate term of the curve, and that is really looking for yield. And also as this part in the rate cycle, um, or at least the expectation on this part of the rate cycle, that you're going to get some capital appreciation as rates continue to move down. And you see quite a bit of retail and advisor positioning uh, into those names. Okay, we're going to have a lot more on all of these subjects, much more coming up. Ben, with Ben, where ETF investors are putting their money, that's coming up. ETF Edge at 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time. Ben will be joined by Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify.com. That's ETFEdge.CNBC.com. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob, appreciate that very much. Thank you, Bob Pisani. Coming up, we have more committee moves. Bob, uh, Bob, Bill. Yes. Bill? You prefer Bill to Bob? I'm Bill. Okay, good. <laughs> he sold an energy name we need to talk about. Uh, we have many other names, by the way, reporting this week. We'll trade a bunch of them next. names outside of big tech reporting this week there. So we said it's the busiest week yet. Um, Nucor is today after the bell. So I, I like the setup, not so much in terms of, of fundamentals and earnings. EPS is going to be down 40% year on year. Uh, revenue is going to be down 12% year on year. You've got labor shortages, which is impacting construction, and they've got pricing pressure. But you're seeing a little bit of auto recovery, some growth there. And the way that these steel names are trading mm-hmm. is very constructive, both in the case of Nucor, which is the largest U.S. steel maker, and Steel Dynamics, which also we own in the Joe ETF. Very strong, positive momentum. Okay. Um, AMD is tomorrow. I don't want to do that one because we've talked a lot about that, its relationship with the so-called AI5, et cetera. But so is Marathon Petroleum, which you own. Yeah, I mean, they're, they have just continued to make record highs. It's in their top 10. I also run a portfolio where I only own 10 names, and it's the only non-tech name in there. Um, they've gone from free cash flow negative in 2020 to like $15 billion uh, plus in, in, uh, over the last year. Just a lot of these energy companies have. But the refining margins have actually tapered off in 2023 at the end, and we've seen Marathon Petroleum shake it off and continue to grind higher. I think a lot. there's a very, very well-run company, and the refining space is doing terrific. Wednesday's MasterCard, Joe. MasterCard and Visa. What we, both. What we, so what do we think here after, I mean, these are payments companies, not you know pure credit cards like I say Amex no, 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 is, no. but what do we think? They don't have the credit exposure. I expect right. another solid quarter. They've been delivering solid co- uh, quarters now for since 2020, both MasterCard and Visa. Um, these are two companies in the financial sector that really have become core holdings when you think about, well, how am I owning the financial sector itself? What about automatic data? 
That's uh, Wednesday as well. You have that in the Joe T. We, we, we do. That's that's a stock that's in a little bit of a, a perilous position. So I'm not going to get too much into that oh, because of the re- upcoming rebalance. Okay. Uh, but there are some things that uh, have deteriorated. Okay. Say no more. Yes. Uh, Bill. So Shell is on Thursday. You sold Shell. I did. So I mean, we we are overweight energy. Marathon Petroleum obviously our largest holding there, but when I. I am a little concerned with growth outside of the U.S. Compared to Marathon, really 100% of the revenues are coming from the U.S. Shell as well, you know, they've started to kind of um, sort of reconstruct a little bit. They got, they're shutting down a, a plant, a refining plant in Germany. They're, they're rolling out something in Nigeria. I'm not really sure the direction of the business as much. And it, we put it on as a starter position. I want to build into things, and I'm just not seeing, you know, the future here at the moment. Okay. Uh, we also have we have Eaton on Thursday, Illinois Toolworks, and Microchip. You want to take which one you want to talk about? Let's talk about Microchip. Okay, go ahead. The, you know that's in the semiconductor space. Um, relative to its peers, there's been a degree of underperformance. This is going to be an earnings report that is going to be incredibly important. Uh, in the case of the other industrials, again, these are quarters where they really have to come forth and show you that the recovery is in place. Okay. I, I think Illinois could have a good report, although I don't own, this, own the name. Mm-hmm. Caterpillar setting record highs. United Rentals blew out report last week. Illinois Toolworks could be right in line with something like that. All right. So we still have to do big winners, big losers, two on each side. SoFi is soaring. We're going to tell you what's up with that. Mike Santoli with his midday words next. Markets commentator Mike Santoli is at the desk with us today for his midday word. As always, you question whether the market has a so-called high-quality problem, but the 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 premium on perceived yeah. quality and whether it's now gotten too expensive. Yeah, I mean, there's a clear preference in that direction. It's really another way to cut at the you know acknowledged winners. A lot of times, we talk about it as mega cap tech as really winning here, but it it really can be more isolated as quality because even within every other sector, it is the the better balance sheets, it's the higher profit margins, the ones that it feels as if they're more predictable. So I'm just really asking the question if people are getting a little bit too comfortable with the stability of those names to the exclusion of everything else. So it doesn't have to be wow, these things are really you know, precipitously high and they have to go down. Mm-hmm. It's really another way that uh, the, the market shows its lack of confidence in the majority of stocks and in the sustainability of this very benign economic environment. You use Berkshire as, a, as an example, yeah. which is interesting. Explain. So Berkshire, of course, quality up and down in terms of uh, financial strength. Uh, it's, fa- it's actually kind of like quality square because the portfolio of its, of its publicly traded companies are also mostly quality. Uh, but right now it's all time high. Uh, it's uh, at a you know premium to its typical book uh, price to book value range. So if you look at a 15 year spread, it's at the upper end. Again, this you're not going to get super hurt by owning Berkshire Hathaway over the long term. The question is, are people crowding in mm. almost by default because they feel there's other things going on? It's got the six percent in Apple. It's you know insurance is a great business right now. We can talk about why specifically, but I, I think it's just a question of let's examine the assumptions under which we're paying a high premium on quality, which of course is in some ways a backward-looking uh, factor. Yeah, interesting. Real, you want to give me something real quick? The relief. 20 seconds. I think the relief comes to the other area of the market that's not considered uh, quality in its nature in the form of yields. Yeah. Mike, yeah. good stuff. I appreciate it. Thank sure. you. That's Mike Santoli. I'll see you on Closing Bell. Of course. Two winners, two losers. That's next. 
talk about two big winners today and two big losers. Boy, SoFi's having a day. Uh, first quarter of profitability on an adjusted basis. That stock's up better than 17%. So that is clearly one of our uh, uh, big winners today. We take a look there. Yep, there it is. About 17 and a quarter percent. Lucid on pace for its best day since January of a year ago. iRobot's down. Amazon's terminating its iRobot deal. That stock's going the opposite direction. How about Nat Gas? We're not talking about a stock per se. There are a lot of equity plays that relate to Nat Gas. This thing has been incredible, just how low Nat Gas price, natural gas prices have gone. Yeah, I mean, you would think with, with what took place uh, with Russia and Ukraine that we would have seen something sustained, and it, it just hasn't. Um, we do actually have some natural gas exposure in Chenier, and it's a, one of a near a top 10 holding of ours, but they get paid on the volume. But the price of natural gas, I mean, it's just falling apart, but we are getting into Widowmaker season, which is the March-April spread, it's historically called. Is there a direct relationship? Well, we talk about all the time, direct relationship between the price of crude and then, and then oil-related stocks. Is it the same way for natural gas? No, for natural gas, for shipping LNG, like so Chenier, they're paid really on the volume of moving natural gas abroad. And so they've actually held out really, really well within range of their 52-week highs, despite what we've seen in natural gas. And, and then the price-wise, we, we get one cold front, the market kind of spikes, it has a lot to do with expiration and positioning in, in the market, and that can really drive things. And then once the cold front goes and the roll happens up to another the next month contract, then the prices have just, just dissipated. Okay. Quick break and final trades are on the other side of that. Hope you join me. Closing bell, 3 o'clock Eastern. Dan Greenhouse with me today, along with King Lip of Baker Avenue. He owns most of the mega caps, so good time to talk to him. And B of A Merrill's Chris Heisey will be here as well, so I'll see you in a couple hours' time. Final trades. Weiss, what do you got? Despite the move, Taiwan Semi is the most critical company to every tech company we mentioned today. Okay, so thanks. I would buy it. I think it goes higher. All right. Thank you for that. Bill Baruch. Abvi, looking forward to the report on Friday, long above 160. We got reiterating on Goldman Sachs and watch that 10-year, 409 right now. Pointing out Meta and Microsoft running during our show, too. So we'll keep our eyes there as we think about big tech this week, Fed meeting, job support, everything else. I'll see you on Closing Bell. The exchange starts now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.